I also think um, starting with the, you know, getting rid of kind of the term and concept in your language of who you're working with about a helicopter parent um, and moving from, you know, thinking about how do you manage parents to how do you really involve them and include them in what you're doing and engage them um, in supporting their students. So I Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. The week that this episode is being recorded has been designated as First Generation College Celebration Week. On or around November 8th each year, campuses acknowledge and elevate the identities and contributions of first generation college students. Building upon past episodes, today I'm bringing together a panel of scholars and college administrators whose research has paid particular attention to parents and families of first-gen students. Before I get to introducing my panel, let me tell you a little bit about our podcast. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. And this episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2000 plus colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each of these sponsors. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, on the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires, Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. And the university resides on land seated in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. I am so grateful to my colleagues and friends, Drs. Kathy Adams-Reister from IU Bloomington, Cassandra Harper from the University of Missouri, and Judy Marquez-Kiano from the University of Arizona, where we all used to work many years ago. Um, so it's so great to be back in community with you all. Um, thank you for joining me for an episode of the podcast and welcome. Let's begin by each of you telling us a little bit about you. Um, what is your work and how does your scholarship and research intersect with today's uh, topic, uh, first-gen parents and families? And Judy, I'm going to start with you. Great. Well, thank you so much for inviting us. And Heather, it's always so fun to be back on one of your um, episodes and shows and evolutions of all of the incredible work that you're doing. So thank you. Um, I'm Judy Marquez Kiyama. I use she, her, hers pronouns. Um, and as Heather mentioned, I'm at the University of Arizona, which is home to the Odom and the Yaqui um, tribal communities. Um, I am in the current role of Associate Vice Provost for Faculty Development. This position is specific to our HSI designation, um, which is relatively new still to the University of Arizona. And I get to work with faculty across the institution in really considering how we support and build capacity around our, our research and scholarship, teaching and service um, in direct relation to our HSI designation and commitment. Um, I am also a professor in the Center for the Study of Higher Education in the College of Education. And, um, you know, my, my research has always been with families in particular communities um, and the ways in which families, Mexican families, low-income families, Pell-eligible families, Latino communities and families, first-generation college families have worked to support their college-going children and developing um, college-going pathways and college knowledge within the home. And about 10 years ago, uh, Cassandra and I decided to engage in a partnership um, in really building a research agenda around um, the college transition points and um, engagement of families um, as they move into and through um, post-secondary um, education with, with their children. So I'll pause there and we'll share more um, as we go through. Great. Thanks so much, Judy. It's so great to see you. Uh, Cassandra, that seems like a good segue to you. Tell us a little bit about you, where you work and what you do in research. 
Sure. Um, I'm Cassandra Harper, and I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. Uh, I'm an associate professor of higher education at the University of Missouri, and uh, my research agenda looks at the differential effects of college on students. And as Judy mentioned, we engaged in some uh, research and some common interests around uh, really combating this helicopter parent narrative that we saw within our student affairs experience and backgrounds and wanted to challenge that and and um, kind of shift the narrative to the many ways in which parents are engaged in the college experience of their children and perhaps in ways that go unseen um, sometimes by college and university faculty and staff. And so it's been a great partnership and um, we have some ideas uh, in the pipeline for upcoming projects related to that. Um, but that's kind of my interest in parent and family engagement. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you. And Kathy Adams Reister, welcome back to the podcast. This might be your third or maybe fourth time because <laughs> I keep coming back to Kathy. Um, welcome back. Thank you, Heather. I'm excited to be back with you all and especially excited also to be here with Judy and Cassandra. Um, I, um, as Heather said, I'm Kathy Adams Reister. Um, I use she, her, and her pronouns. And I'm the Associate Vice Provost and Executive Associate Dean of Students at Indiana University in Bloomington, where I oversee um, student service areas in the Division of Student Affairs, including our Parent Advisory Board and our Parent and Family Programs here um, at IU. Um, previous to this role, which I've only been in for just about four years, I was at the University of Arizona. And in my role there, um, I work really closely overseeing parent and family programs at the University of Arizona. And I was fortunate enough while I was there in 2015 to actually do some collaborating on an ASH uh, monograph with Judy and Cassandra um, as a practitioner um, around parent and family engagement. And then um, additionally, I also was working um, during that time also on my dissertation, which actually looked at how families of first-generation college students experience the transition with their students um, from high school to college. Um, so I did some qualitative research in that area as well. Um, I also want to acknowledge that um, Indiana University um, sits on um, the ancestral homelands, um, indigenous resources, and I want to acknowledge um, and recognize the Miami, Delaware, and Potawatomi and Shawnee peoples as past, present, and future caretakers of the land that I am coming to you from. Thank you to all three of you. Um, this is going to be a fabulous conversation, and I love how paths have overlapped and intersected over time. Um, and so I think that this, what we have lots to build upon. Hopefully, um, you know, we can do this in, in, in the amount of time that we have allotted. If not, we'll just have to have a part two to this conversation. Because um, we are kind of complicating this notion, right, of parent and family and really thinking about it through the lens of first-gen students. Um, and Judy, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, this week was designated as a celebration for first-gen students back in 2017. Um, before we get to talking about their parents and families, um, maybe we could spend just a moment talking about who are first-gen students um, and why is an acknowledgement of their identities and accomplishments, achievements um, important to higher education? So we'll start with that. Yeah, you know, we had um, our first-gen CATS uh, unit do a little bit of um, celebrating yesterday as well. And that's how a lot of people walking around with their first-gen CATS t-shirts. Um, and last year had the opportunity to, to talk with some of the students and their families. They brought some of their families and shared my own path as a first-generation college student and the wrong turns that I took, um, even during that first week of coming to campus, um, but also shared the number of people and resources and the fierce commitment behind my own first-generation college story and that that we see of our students and their parents and families. And so when we consider um, who first-generation college students are, there's there's a multitude of definitions, but Cassandra and I draw largely on um, the definition that the U.S. Department of Education uses, and that's, you know, we see it with TRIO programs and GEAR-UP programs and others, and that is that parents did not complete a four-year college or university degree, um, regardless of other family members' degree completion. So it might be that a sibling 
has completed a four-year degree, but the parent or guardian has not. So that typically is, is the definition that we will draw from in our own scholarship and research. Um, and I think in some places, we might see people pushing this as a proxy for race, ethnicity, or other mm -hmm. identifiers. And we can't do that, right? I mean, yes, there's, mm -hmm. there's different intersecting, intersecting um, elements of our identities. And some of our first-generation college students also belong to minoritized or underserved racial and ethnic communities or are PAL eligible or are, you know, fill in the blank with multiple identities. Um, but we can't ever substitute or swap them as proxies for one another. Um, but I do, you know, I think, I well, I'm so grateful that our institutions are recognizing who are not only our students are as first-gen students, but faculty and staff too, but there's there's such a connection that can be made when you know that somebody has gone through the same path and that there's possibilities um, and people who you can turn to for questions. Um, I think our institutions are doing a better job of collecting that data from the very beginning, um, whereas before on college applications, we didn't even know who might have identified as first-generation college students. Um, and it's very helpful for us when we consider the role that parents and families play and how, how to approach engagement with parents and families from an asset-based lens. So that's, I think, a good place for me to pause. That's, that is a great place to, to transition because I do want to talk, um, Kathy, maybe you can share a little bit about how some of these common notions of how parents are perceived and assumptions that institutions make about um, the role that they play in their incoming students' lives um, you know, how are these damaging and in what ways are these um, assumptions potentially keeping campuses from serving the full range of incoming students and their families? Um, so I'll, I'll let you kind of go there. Sure. So I think one of the challenges that we see is that campuses often make the assumption that parents are someone that need to be managed or people that need to be managed. Um, and with that type of, of viewpoint, I think it's pretty limiting in the types of interactions, because I think that has us say, oh, we want to keep them at arm's length. Um, you know, it's not necessarily the open, let's involve everyone who can support a student in student success um, and how we can support their student success. Um, I think we also have seen um, that campuses have a viewpoint that um, a, a very restricted viewpoint that parents are the only supporters of student and students. Um, when I, you know, we know that multiple other people support students besides parents, and and just labeling the supporter as a parent um, might be a misnomer for a particular student in their relationship. So I think we need to open our concepts there. Um, and I think we also, when we look at the term helicopter parent, that was originally coined by the media. Um, when we look at that term and the way that campuses have employed it and used it, it also goes back to the, how do we manage parents? How do we keep them at a distance? Um, and it's really damaging um, because really in, on campuses, that term has also come um, often in the research, it, it really relates to um, upper middle class, often white families who are only one small subset of the parents and families that we have supporting students. And it really is often doesn't apply. Those types of behaviors don't apply, especially to families of, of first generation college students. And so we're taking one viewpoint and labeling all parents perhaps as that viewpoint. And then it doesn't let us see the nuances of different types of support and different ways we can help really uh, move from engaging to um, helping to engage parents and families in different ways to help support their students' resources. That's great. What what would the rest of you add? I and mean, now we've unpacked a little bit about who first-gen students are and why acknowledging their accomplishments is important, as well as who um, who parents and families are and the assumptions that institutions make. Um, what else would you add about kind of why this topic is relevant and important? I would add that um, first-gen parents, because they might be less seen on a college or university campus, we might have assumptions about them that are, are incorrect and that they really do want welcoming outreach connection with institutions. And so 
Um, being able to, again, kind of challenge that helicopter parent narrative can be really helpful. Um, and then what you said about the celebration part, I think that's so important too, that there's a sense of pride that first generation could be seen as a label that has a sense of pride and community to it, that you're not the only one. Um, and that there's a you know a variety of families that exist and could meet each other maybe and support each other, um, I think is really encouraging. Yeah, you know, one of the things I thought about when, well, both Kathy and Cassandra mentioned the helicopter parent notion, um, media has been so perpetuated so many deficit uh, definitions and framings and views of who parents and families are, particularly first-gen parents and families. And I remember as Cassandra and I were first starting some of this work, there was one media article that talked about um, parents viewing and watching their kids from a space station as if it presented this like image of they were just so far removed and so far away and they had no idea what was going on um you know in a different world right and that's kind of the image mm -hmm. that it invoked and then there was another one that talked about um parents just sending their kids off um having to then like earn money to like solve all the family's problems and there was just so um negative such negative language around expectations of the of the students and then the role that the families would play and it really prompted us to go deeper in thinking about um the ways in which families could be engaged, but also the knowledge that they bring. Um, it may not be the step-by-step -step college knowledge that we would see from a family who has gone, gone to college for generations, um, but there's so much cultural and historical and community knowledge shared, and we shouldn't dismiss it, um, and certainly shouldn't perpetuate the deficit notions that we were seeing in media. The other common thing I'm kind of noticing from all of these analogies is that it's about distance and it's about keeping parents separate and families separated from the campus and from their students, which if we um, if we count that notion and really kind of recast parents as partners, um, parents and families is a central component of our student success initiatives. Um, I think we can really accomplish a lot more, right? Versus like, we're just gonna put you up in outer space or we're gonna depict that kind of um, hovering over but not really engaging with um, mindset. So um, Cassandra, I think one of the particular points in time is that transition moment, right? So how and what role do parents and families play at that point when students are coming into a campus environment for the first time um, and so, you know, talk a little bit more about how we avoid falling into this deficit mindset that, you know, parents and families have not, you know, haven't, haven't given their, their students the tools. Uh, talk a little bit more about the assets that uh, first-gen students and parents and families bring. Yeah, I, I think our data really have spoken to the fact that parents are involved, they're invested, they're engaged, first-gen parents are thrilled, they're excited for, you know, their, their kids, but I use that term intentionally to describe how parents are describing their kids, they're not students, they're kids. Yeah. Um, you know, that there is a sense of, um, you know, pride, um, uh, celebration. Uh, they want their students to do well and um, to, to be successful. But that, that transition time really is a time of change for both the student and the parents. So there, there's a role shift there of adjusting to something that's new and different, right? And, you know, what does that look like? And what we've seen is that for first-gen parents are supporting their students emotionally, sometimes financially, just a variety of, of forms of support. And again, that that's different than that narrative of first-gen parents and that um, they might not be attending all of the same events or at the same frequency. We have to think about, um, again, that just access to uh, programming, but um, through that transition, um, I think parents have expressed that they really want um, their kids to grow and to become more independent. And um, 
And that's a commonality there that parents and student affairs has, you know, in alignment that we both want that. And so how do we, as you said, partner with parents and bring them into that conversation? And um, I think that's the conversation that we, we need to continue to have within student affairs. It's a shift for us of okay, what would this look like if we do invite parents into the conversation and what does too much support look like? What is too little? Um, what is helpful? What is excessive? Um, so I think there's more work to be done there, but to know that parents and, and staff want the same thing, I think is helpful to keep in mind. Kathy, I know you um, looked at this in detail in your dissertation um, in terms of what support, supportive um, you know, members of a, of a campus community and of a parent um, and family organization is. Can you talk a little bit more about what specifically that transition point, what did you find that parents and families contributed during that time period? Sure. So I and Cassandra mentioned some of this. So the the families were often, and I'm going to use the term family a little bit loosely because in um, the interviews that I did, so it wasn't just a parent. So sometimes it was a, a sister, um, a brother, a cousin, a grandparent, um, a, a, a boyfriend, girlfriend, so a partner. Um, so there were multiple different types of supporters when I asked students to identify who they got their most support from, and it wasn't just a parent. Um, so I think that's one of the things I think to keep in mind of, of who is supporting our students. And they also had pretty deep um, relationship networks that they had created for themselves um, to help kind of with other types of, of support um, through the process. Um, but as part of that, um, so they were, you know, they had um, emotional support um, from from their family member. They had um, sometimes, um, they often had religious support, which was part of kind of their family foundation. Um, as part of that, they had um, financial resource support, um, as well as sometimes care packages. Um, you know, even some points where different family members or part of the relationship would help with um, editing papers, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had a, a, a grandparent who was really great with business, who was helping with business homework. So I, I think that there are uh, multiple ways that families are drawing upon um, their knowledge um, and their community knowledge, as Judy said, to help support the student's success. Um, in college. And a lot of it was just the regular check-ins of how are you doing? How can I help you? You know, remember when you get stressed, like here's some things that are helpful for that. So, so they are employing lots of strategies. I think the challenge is um, thinking about the strategies that they're employing are really not visible to those of us working mm -hmm. on campus and campus jobs. So I talk a lot about invisible strategies that are being employed that are often behind the scenes. So you're not really seeing that support um, that's being offered to that student. So it, it's not necessarily, and, and I think when we think um, we need to shift a little bit what our model of support looks like. So if we consider parent involvement to be a parent showing up on campus for an activity to support their students, um, that's really not often, and that will happen a little bit, but that's not what we're seeing with first-generation college students. But if we shift our model to think about parent engagement and how are they engaging with their student and with the institution, um, that then starts to capture some of the more invisible strategies that we're seeing. And part of, and then looking at how do we make those strategies more visible um, and help connect. You know, parents are. I mean, they were able um, in some cases to, you know, know that there were resources and suggest to their student, you know, have you talked to your professor? Have you talked to, you know, do you need a tutor? Um, so, so those things are happening. They're just not visible to us on campus. That's great. Um, I think the, the key here is that sound that I keep hearing over and over is engagement, right? And I, Judy, you and Cassandra developed a model that talks um, about all of the dimensions of parent and family engagement. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that model. We'll provide some links in the show notes um, that will help people kind of both visualize as well as learn more if they're interested. Yeah, and it built so much on what Kathy uh, just said. And it also was a way for us to capture in writing and through the development of a, a visual and a model itself, the ways in which we can combat all these deficit notions that we that we mm -hmm. talked about, right? And so... It is. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the name so I don't mess it up. It's the model of parent and family characteristics, engagement, and support. Um, and what we really tried to do was capture all of the different elements 
that influence, contribute to um, engagement with of parents and families with their college age children um, as they make those decisions about college, transition in, and then continue that engagement in college. And so um, there are elements around family and community, like we've been talking about, um, different college characteristics, institutional context, of course, which we've talked a little about, um, pre-college characteristics, but then within um, the, the notion that you are constantly also engaging with things like your own self-efficacy and independence mm -hmm. development, like Cassandra mentioned, um, educational aspirations that are not just pre-college aspirations, but aspirations that shift as you learn about yourself and your interests and your professional path, um, the social networks that students are connected to pre-college and within, um, the different involvement and engagement that students and families um, participate in, various dimensions of support. And we leave that broad because like Kathy mentioned, family is not bound by a household. They're not bound by these nuclear definitions that we've seen. Um, in fact, some of the students, um, you know, that we learn more about are coming in without these quote unquote traditional definitions of family altogether. They're, they may be former foster youth. They may be independent students. Mm -hmm. um, they may be bringing support people with them who are part of their kinship network. Um, so these elements and factors are all interconnected. And then of course the family characteristics themselves. Um, we were purposeful not to present this in a stepwise or hierarchical kind of fashion um, because there is no maybe temporal order to them. Mm. These are things that students are engaging with throughout, um, throughout their time as a student and we want them to. So that was the other maybe intentional element of how we developed this is we don't want there to have to be that separation from parents and families. We don't want it to feel distanced. Um, we want it to look like in terms of a visual, but then also as we engage the model, we want it to appear that that parent and family engagement is as important now in post-secondary settings as we stress it in, in K-12, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that was the maybe the, the impetus behind it and how it came to be. Uh, we drew quite a bit on some of the maybe cultural asset framing um, K-12 models of parent-family engagement, um, the ways in which we consider collectivist orientations of engaging with parents and families, um, and now are trying to, you know, as we go through and do additional analysis on our own studies and data, maybe zero in a little bit more on some of these factors to learn more about independence or to learn more about um, like the, the role of the institution, the assumptions of the institution, the communication patterns by the institution, so we can build out these different factors um, within. So when I think about this model, um, and I, I think I mentioned before we started recording that Michigan State University has just recently established the Parent Family Program Office. And so, um, you know, making uh, actionable plans around a model like this, I think is one way that it could be kind of um, actualized, right? So can you can you talk about some of the recommendations that might actually translate into either institutional actions or individual unit actions or, you know, recommendations for student success kind of initiatives? Cassandra, do you want to jump in or do you want me to keep, I have my list. <laughs> Go for it and I'll, I'll follow up if, if needed. Okay. And this, I mean, this has come not only from the development of the model itself, but the, the research that Cassandra and I, along with our incredible, like, um, grad students in the last 10 years that they've been doing yeah. have now published on their own and Kathy's work, but, you know, things like considering different formats for engagement, right? Not, and I think the pandemic has pushed us all to really rethink this altogether, but um, the fact that not everything has to be in person, that we can utilize virtual formats, that there's a lot that we can do even with our, with our phones um, by ways of engagement with parents and families. Um, don't, don't dismiss parents and families as problematic. And Kathy mentioned this as the begin at the beginning, um, people or problems to manage, right? Um, I think we've got to just move away from that whole notion altogether. Um, 
considering the cost, of course, of what engagement might be. And uh, this is, I think, really specific to perhaps multi-day events, whether that's orientation or family weekend events or whatever it might be, pre-college events. Um, you know, there are there are situations in which families cannot take the time off or they cannot afford to to pay the cost of having multiple family members attend a, an event for multiple days. So again, I think it goes back to how do we consider different formats and make them as accessible and inclusive as possible. Um, and then having resources available after um, doing what you're doing today, recording things and having it accessible after for people to view. Um, and then a big one that came up with a lot of our work is making sure that services are offered in multiple languages and really getting to know who families are and the languages that they are using in their homes. And so um, if there's not um, simultaneous presentations available in multiple languages, making sure that there's translation or an interpretation um, services offered. So I that you know we have a list, but keep going, Cassandra. I'm sure I missed some. Yeah, that was really good. I was just gonna say I think you know common in what we found and what our focus is is that we can't let the the responsibility be only on the families, right? So what can mm -hmm. institute do to reach out earlier, maybe even pre-college, or how do we build relationships more intentionally? One thing that we heard from first-gen parents is that um, the authentic communication that they would get was really appreciated, the relationship mm -hmm. building, but what they tended to see more often was fundraising or, you know, um, calls for for those sorts of things of, of donations. And so, being able to build authentic relationships because we found that first-gen parents might be less likely to reach out, but if they do build a relationship with someone, that that's someone that they're going to return to. So for example, we had, uh, you know, one participant who, um, whose student majored in engineering, met the advisor, the student changed their major, but for all future questions, the engineering major <laughs> advisor was the person that they went to. So we can be strategic in that knowledge of who can we set up um, a meaningful connection with that the parent can um, kind of return to over time. That is great. That is great. Well, as you were talking about um, talking about those ranges of the model, I kept thinking about context and how different, and I think this is part of it too, right? Institution type and, and context. Um, and I, I do think it does mean that our institutions bear some responsibility in understanding who their parent and families are, what kinds of supports might be needed. Um, but, but like, what do we know about two-year institutions, four-year institutions, public, private, um, Cassandra, can you build on that a little bit, how context um, might adjust what the expectations are a bit? Uh, I love this question because context does really matter. And so thinking about the students who are attracted to different institutions because they have different needs and they're looking for different things out of of uh, the higher education experience. So just as the students are different, their parents and their key supporters and that network is going to look really differently. So I think, you know, I'm thinking about direct entry from high school students and, you know, the range of students we have in that category. Um, you know, some of those students are have financial responsibilities for their families, actually, mm. um, or, you know, might have a lot of support from from parents and uh, key supporters. And then think about returning adults who have work experience, families of their own. Maybe you're doing some parental care responsibilities. Mm. Um, those are really different populations. So partially, uh, my answer is, you know, I think that context matters and that there's a lot there. I also think that we just don't fully know. Um, I think we need more data and mm -hmm. need to collect more data on the key supporters that students are turning to, because I think you're absolutely right that this would look very differently at these different campuses. And how do we know more about them? How do we connect with those key supporters? Can we get their contact information and permission mm -hmm. to 
follow up and share information um, and maybe even seek opportunities to allow family members and supporters to connect with each other. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, and that's what I that's what I love about all these recommendations. I think they do provide really like key um, pieces for how do we create opportunities for engagement. Um, so we've been talking kind of broadly. And Kathy, I'm going to drill down into very specific types of units for which um, all of this has implications. And so, you know, when you think about all the things that we've already discussed around parents and families, particularly first gen students, um, parents and families, you know, what are the implications for new student orientation, for PAM, parent and family program offices, for various student services units, student success initiatives, communications? <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll like throw, throw like the broad list out there um, and then you can kind of talk through and we can kind of then um, go into a little bit more detail. Sure. So I I think um, Judy and Cassandra have just listed some really key things that I think mm -hmm. you have to take into consideration in on how you're building all of these programs. So when you look at new student orientation, um, how long is it? What is the cost? Are there alternatives? Is there a session that's you know adjacent to the beginning of the school year so that mm -hmm. families aren't having to come twice and, and pay that expense twice? Um, depending on the background of the families and, and languages spoken at home, you know, are things provided in alternate languages so that families really are, are being able to understand if English isn't their first language, the context of what's being shared um, in, in a session for parent and family. So I, I think looking at some of those things is really important um, when you think about um, new student orientation and how that's structured. And, and I think also one of the things that I think, regardless of, of what type of student we're talking about, if we're talking to parents and families, talking about that transition from high school to college is also super important because I think we get all caught up on, oh, you're in college now and here's what college looks like. But mm -hmm. I think sometimes helping connect the dots of high school is different and here it, from college and here are the differences and spelling those out for for any group that we're talking to, um, for families and supporters is super important because sometimes that connection isn't always made and that helps them, I think, better support their students. Um, I also think for parent and family programming offices, um, creating good connections across campus because I don't I don't know that there are a lot of places where parent and family programs and programming and something like a first generation or first cats like like University of Arizona has that they're connected um, mm -hmm. and making those connections, I think, is super important um, because then I think you can look at, you know, are there different populations and different types of needs and different ways to connect with different populations so that you're really serving everyone and being inclusive in what you're doing. And I think if you follow kind of some of the traditional parent family programming models that are out there, you're probably missing kind of your your level of being inclusive in, in that service. So I think being able to take a look at and really evaluating what you're doing and, and are you being inclusive um, of all the, the families that are part of, of the student groups and making sure that if you're sharing, um, and this kind of goes to communication, but for parent and family programs, if you're sharing communication, um, you know, how are you doing that? Um, what type of programming are you doing? And are there multiple formats of that programming? You know, is your really one big event come for family weekend? And, and then that's not super inclusive because not everyone can come for family weekend. So I think really looking at that lens of how inclusive is our programming and are we sharing things in multiple types of formats and modalities and perhaps multiple types of languages um, as well that, you know, I know Judy talked a little bit about that. So I think all of those are important to think about. Um, I think with student success initiatives, as we're looking at those, I think it makes sense to look at how our parent and family members, partners in success, like you mentioned earlier, Heather, and how do we, you know, work on um, bringing them in to embrace and help support student success instead of trying to manage them. And I think that's such a different lens and philosophy, but I think if we're all working together, then I think ultimately we have more um, ability to support our students. So really looking at how are, are maybe parents and families part of our success strategy um, with, with how we're trying to support students as far as that goes. That's super great. Um, Judy or Cassandra, anything else you would add as far as um, repercussions for these very specific units or offices? I think the financial aid piece is huge. Finances have come up over and over again. Mm. Parents want more information. So there's really, um, you know, no, no limit there of additional um, 
communication. And then for communications offices, I think the work that Judy and I have done has spoken to the philosophy that we need to talk about of, of um, not only kind of the messages towards parents, but um, kind of what is our value and intentionality behind what we want to say and how do we want to say it? I think um, the data also showed that first-gen families want to be invited. And so there's there's a way of phrasing those sorts of invitations in a way that communicates that their presence is desired and mm. uh, needed. And um, that's slightly different maybe than how we're thinking about communications. I love that. Um, so my next question is really around advice and resources and what, what should we be doing to kind of improve and collectively as practitioners, as faculty, as grad students, um, what should we be doing to improve our understanding of and better serve um, first-gen students as well as the parent, their parents and families? Um, Judy, I'll start with you and then we'll see what else uh, everyone else will add. Okay. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start maybe from like a, a umbrella institution perspective. Uh, one of the things that came up a number of times when we were talking to um, administrators or, or directors of parent and family um, offices is that there's just not enough resources to build mm -hmm. out the intentional programming that they want to do. Um, and that often parent and family offices get moved with mm -hmm. whatever might be, um, uh, I don't know, organizationally the fit at the moment, but not always the best intentional fit when we consider how how to best then build this entire kind of intentional programming for, for parents, families, and, and their students. And so uh, we saw a lot of different organizational models and a lot of different resource and funding models. We also heard, talked to quite a few people who mentioned that they had a significant fundraising component to their jobs, which meant that whatever they were doing to serve parents and families, they had to raise the funds for. And so I guess one one piece of advice was that if this is really important for our institutions, then institutions need to invest in the resources that these offices and departments need um, mm -hmm. to then serve parents and families and engage them in intentional ways. Um, the other piece that I think we could do better um, in terms of really understanding who, who our students are, who their parents and families are, is, is tap into institutional research and data. And if we're capturing who students are on their applications as first-generation college students, um, then we we can we can um, analyze and disaggregate right by different identifying factors. We can understand their um, college-going paths a little bit more. We can see um, I don't know, whatever institutional data is mm -hmm. is collected. Right, there's ways to like pull it and analyze it, and then use it to inform the work that we're doing. Um, so those two pieces from from an institutional perspective, and and certainly as you know, for those of us who are are teaching and um, preparing graduate students, I think there's an element of that as well that I know you were going to ask Cassandra to talk about. Yeah, that. Cassandra. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect, Cassandra. As a faculty member, what would you suggest? No pressure. Um, just expanding that narrative, you know, I think in our coursework, we can really make sure that we are questioning what assumptions do we have about parents, you know, of today's college students? What images do you have in your mind? Who are you serving? Who do you think about? And then for programming, you know, I think the data point is, is a great one to come back to, too, of, um, you know, are we collecting data about who's participating, who isn't, and are we making conclusions about that? What could we be doing differently on the institutional side related to that? But I think, you know, the, the involvement of parents and families is such a shift. So I think that should start in, um, in graduate school preparation programs to, to have those conversations early and often of, what would this look like? What are the logistical barriers? What are the FERPA needs that we need to look through? What are the considerations um, on campuses? But I think if campuses can see the benefit and the value, it's not an added task alone, mm -hmm. but it's 
it's expanding our ability to reach students to really enhance their student success, which Kathy's work, you know, really speaks to. I think that that's, that could be a benefit and a rationale that we could use to get that additional support. That's great. Kathy, I'm going to tweak this question just a little bit for you. Um, <laughs> so as a former director of a parent family office and as somebody who now supervises that office, what advice would you give to campuses that don't have this office that are thinking about starting one? Mm -hmm. um, or what are the essential components that you think um, that you think they should include? So I, I would say that they need to um, do some looking um, as to kind of a little bit of program evaluation. What's out there? Who are their students? Who are their family members? As part of that, you know, what's the population they're going to be serving? And there's some there's some decent data. I mean, I was able to do a lit review for my dissertation. So I know, you know, there's information out there that you can look at. Um, and I think there's some good recommendations about how to build more inclusive models for parent and mm -hmm. family programming. Um, and and looking at what 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 you build from the ground, how can it be inclusive mm -hmm. from the beginning? And I think that would be the place to start is how do you how do you build that type of model um, of programming with how you're doing outreach and the type of programming that you're doing um, and those kinds of things I think would be where I'd start. I also think um, starting with the, you know, getting rid of kind of the term and concept in your language of who you're working with about a helicopter parent um, and moving from, you know, thinking about how do you manage parents to how do you really involve them and include them in what you're doing and engage them um, in supporting their students. So I, I think having going in with that philosophy and hopefully, and I, you know, I've worked in places where fundraising is a component um, of, of that office, but I think if it is, you also have to be super protective that the, also the focus, if you really want to build an inclusive programming, it can't really also just be about fundraising. And there's a, you know, there's a place for that, but, but you need to be able to have, um, Think, be able to think about them separately, I think, mm -hmm. as part of that. Um, and, and, and you know, there's a place for the fundraising part, too. But I think to build it inclusively, you know, you need to have the ability just to have programs that don't cost and, and provide resources and supports that are a benefit and support to all and not just because you're, you know, donating money or you're involved or part mm -hmm. of the association or things like that based on financial contribution. So I think that's where it gets a little tricky when when fundraising is tied to to the organization as, as part of what you're doing. So I think those would be some places to start. Um, and I think there is some good information out there on and what do you need to think about in building? I mean, Judy and, and Cassandra have done a lot of work in that area and you know, there's been some good things written I think that you could, could start as a basis to look at. That's great, that's perfect, thank you. Um, for my own campus's benefit as well as others, other places that are thinking and 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 are just really in the beginning stages of building these types of programs. Um, so we're to the end and we always run for a little short on time. Um, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. And so we always kind of take a moment at the end to kind of summarize what are you pondering, questioning, thinking about, excited about now? Um, and if you would like to share how or where people can connect with you, that would be great. Um, and so Kathy, we'll stay with you for, for, for final thoughts. What are you thinking about now? So I am thinking about, um, I just think there's a lot more work and possibility in this area, especially as we're, I mean, at, at Indiana, we're in throes of strategic planning and thinking about, how, you know, how do we, you know, where's the role and in, in possibility of engaging parents and family members as supporters as part of that um, and trying to kind of, for me and the roles that I have in there, working that into to some of the conversations about how do we, how do we do that and engage that as part of our student success area. So I think that's probably one of the big things. Um, I also, for finding me, I'm at Indiana, excuse me, Indiana University in Bloomington. Um, and I think I can provide maybe my bio, make sure my email address is there. Perfect. Thanks so much, Kathy. Cassandra, what about you? Uh, well, we're thinking about, uh, I think, independence development, uh, faculty and staff who have questions about how this might look and how their work might involve parents. I'm sure that there's some hesitation on the part of some. So I think continuing that uh, research and uh, application to practice will be important. Um, and then Judy and I are, are collaborating on a book project 
um, and are looking for contributors. So this, I think what we've talked about today kind of highlights just how complex this is and how, um, you know, things might be shifting on campuses and that people are doing really good work in this area and we're looking for contributions uh, related to case studies or discussion questions or, you know, what this might look like on different campuses. Um, so we'll put uh, some information in the show notes, I believe, um, to connect that way. Uh, and then I can be found uh, via email, and I think uh, the information will be in the show notes there as well. Great. Thank you so much, Cassandra. Judy, final thought. Yeah, so check mark and echo, right, what Cassandra said, since we're working on this exciting uh, book proposal together. Um, we'd love to have folks contribute. Um, I'm always you know, interested, too, in what parents and families have to say, and what is it that they need and want to see, particularly as we consider first-generation college families, um, families of color, eligible families, um, and especially coming out of the pandemic. Um, I don't know that we fully know yet mm -hmm. if if families' needs have shifted, um, what that might look like, how we as institutions need to be responding to that and engaging them in ways that is um, shifting based on um, how their family situations may have changed because of the pandemic. So those are some of my thoughts. Um, I will share my email and Twitter handle. I think that's what it's called. This is how like tech savvy I am and social media savvy, <laughs> um, Twitter and, and LinkedIn. So I'll share those after. Great. Thank you all so much. I'm as, as always, just grateful for your time and for the wisdom and sharing your contributions to the research and to this conversation. Um, also sending heartfelt appreciation to our de dedicated producer, Nat Ambrosi. Thank you, Nat, for everything that you do. Um, if you are listening today not already receiving our weekly newsletter, you can visit our website and there'll be a pop-up in, in which you can enter your email and then you'll receive an email every Wednesday with our newest episode. Um, while you're there, you can check out our archives. I think we're at like 127 episodes or something like this at this point, which is great. Um, just a little bit more about our sponsors for today. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, how will your institutions rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitment to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. And it's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment and not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been a partner for, of choice for 2,000 plus colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind their courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve, and you can learn more at Vector Solutions. Our other sponsor today is Simplicity. Simplicity is a global leader in student services technology platforms, a state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services, Learn more by visiting simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Um, you can take a moment to visit our website and, and click on the sponsors link to learn more as well about these and our other sponsors. Again, I'm Heather Say. Thanks to our listeners, everybody who is watching today. Make a great week, everyone. Mm -hmm.